Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. The reading should give you the sense that we arrive at our story this morning in the middle of things. Last night, we marked Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his crucifixion. And throughout all of the gospel's account of that meal, the smell of betrayal is thick in the air. Someone is about to hand Jesus over. And yet that term, handing Jesus over, it's a bit strange to us, isn't it? Betrayal we're familiar with, we're fine with. The idea of betrayal sounds a bit devious, it sounds a bit calculated, malicious, calculating. But the term the Gospels consistently use about what happened to Jesus is that he is going to be handed over. In much the same way that someone would hand over a letter, someone would deliver a message, someone would pass on a tradition. In fact, the term handed over is precisely the term that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, that which I received from the Lord, I handed over to you. It's a term that's used for the handing on of a tradition. Jesus, in other words, is not going where he is unwilling to go. Betrayal makes it sound like Jesus is somehow passive. And yet it seems as though Jesus was never more active than in these moments before he was about to be handed over. That's why the New Testament places such high stake on Jesus's obedience, his constant obedience to his will of the, uh, to the will of his father. In other words, what now happens is the culmination of a long journey. This is the end of the road that Jesus has been walking from the very beginning. And notice how important the idea of walking, of traveling, of following is throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always moving. He's very rarely still. He's always moving. And all of his movement has been towards this one moment. So where is Jesus going? In a word, Jesus is about to plunge into the darkness. It's incredibly significant, I think, that we are told that after Jesus and his disciples leave that upper room from celebrating that final meal, it's nighttime. Jesus and his followers go out into the garden where Jesus lays his will aside once again in humble obedience to his father. And there at night, we're told, the chief priests, the officers, the temple police and the elders come and they seize Jesus. They seize Jesus at night. Jesus quizzes them. But I've been in the temple day after day, Luke tells us. Whenever you have those repetitions of words, it should alert you that something is here being stressed. I've been in the temple day after day. You could have seized me at any moment. But no, Jesus says, you've come out to me at night. Listen to what Luke says. This is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour 
and the power of darkness. As one very fine New Testament writer has put it, the darkness is Satan's realm, and those who keep Satan's business keep Satan's hours. Notice, by the way, that at the end of Luke's account of the crucifixion, he tells us, now it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now this image of light coming into the world and the darkness trying to extinguish it, of light coming into the world and the darkness trying to swamp it, this is something we're quite familiar with. Anyone who's read the fourth gospel knows this language very well. The light comes into the world, the darkness doesn't want it, and so tries to put it out. But what in Luke's gospel does this look like? What does it look like for Jesus to come into the darkness and for the darkness to try to swamp it, to cover it? Well, in essence, it looks like a vast conspiracy, a conspiracy of former enemies, of interested parties who have all teamed up together to snuff out a common enemy. Notice, for instance, that who is it who comes to Jesus in the garden to arrest him? It's the temple leadership, the chief priests, their soldiers, their helpers, the ones who are entrusted to guard the integrity of the temple, to keep the rituals surrounding the worship of God safe, those who are entrusted with guarding God's holiness. Those are the ones who come out and arrest Jesus. Why? The Gospels are incredibly consistent. The reason the temple leadership is opposed to Jesus is because they regard Jesus as a false prophet, a false leader, a loose cannon, a charlatan, a fake, someone who is leading God's people astray, someone who is teaching them to do the wrong thing. He's teaching the people to relax the commandments that God has given them. You remember, in many respects, the greatest of all commandments in the first five books of the Old Testament. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. At every point, Jesus is teaching the people, you've misunderstood what holiness is. You've misunderstood what it means to gather around a holy God and to behave as holy people in this world. The chief priests, the leaders of the temple, they come out at night. They seize Jesus under the charge, you do not speak in the name of any God that we worship. They bring him before Pilate, which is where our reading gathers this morning. Now, Pilate couldn't have cared less about any of this. Pilate was not religiously invested in the rituals and practices of this backwoods people that he had been condemned to oversee. Pilate was there to guard two things, two things only. He was there to guard peace in that region. Any uprisings, any nuisances would disrupt trade, would disrupt money flow back to Rome. And so it needed to be swiftly put down. He was there to guard, to ensure the peace, and he was there to ensure a steady flow of money back to Rome. That's what Pilate was there for. In essence, Israel is a great mine. It's a thoroughfare through which grain could come up from Egypt and through to Rome. Israel itself was a place where taxes would be collected and the taxes would be 
sent back to Rome. And Pilate is little more than the incarnation, the embodiment of Rome's unrivaled power over the entire world. He's there, if I can put it in a strange way, Pilate is there as a kind of priest to the one true God who lives in Rome. You may recall that Augustus Caesar called himself the son of God. And the taxes, the monies that were being drawn from all over the world, these are being sent as tributes, as monetary prayers back to Caesar. This is how you pay worship to Caesar's unrivaled power. Because you see, power is what it means for God to be God. And Pilate is Caesar's priest. So Jesus is brought before Pilate. Pilate has a very simple question for him. Are you a threat? Are you a rival? Are you a challenge to my power? Are you the king of the Jews? You see, Rome had divided the entire world into two kinds of people, rivals and slaves. Slaves were the people in the world who adopted their proper position at the feet of Roman power because no one could challenge Roman power. Slaves are the ones who took their rightful place groveling at the feet of the Romans. Rivals were those who were after their own share in Roman power. Rivals were challengers trying to claw back a bit of power of their own. But it was all about power. If you'll permit me, Roman power is a bit like the one ring in the Lord of the Rings. It divides the inhabitants of Middle Earth. Either people desperately want it, they lust after it, or they're terrified of it. But the ring affects all people. Well, almost all people, but that's another thing for another day. Everyone is affected by Roman power. Evil they Either they grovel before it, or they lust after it. And Pilate's wondering, Jesus, what sort of person are you? Are you a rival? Because you see, the Romans had a very neat way of dealing with rivals. They had a particular form of punishment that was reserved only for rivals, people who weren't slaves. And it was called crucifixion. And crucifixion wasn't about pain. There were other ways that the Romans had devised that were much more painful than crucifixion. The Romans, in fact, were quite advanced in their forms of punishment. They moved on from simple impalement. Um, if you can imagine sort of human kebabs, human skewers, the Romans decided, okay, yes, painful, yes, awful to behold, but it doesn't really have the desired effect. Because what's the desired effect? The desired effect of crucifixion is to take rivals and to turn them into slaves. The purpose of crucifixion is to take rivals, people who are after their share of Roman power, and to turn them into slaves. The purpose of crucifixion was humiliation. It's to take someone who might have had a claim to Roman power and to debase them to humiliate them, to emasculate them. Where do you fit in my world? Pilate is asking Jesus. 
as you can see, Pilate certainly doesn't see him as a rival, does he? This man has no power. This man constitutes no threat. He's an irritation, a nuisance, a fool, a clown. For Pilate, Jesus was no rival. There was no room in Pilate's world for Jesus. This is from Luke 23, 8 to 12. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. This is the word of the Lord. We go from Jesus before Pilate to Jesus before Herod. Feels a bit like a game of hot potato, doesn't it? Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. Are you a threat? Are you a rival? You see, we already have a king of the Jews. Thank you very much. And he's serving us quite nicely. You can almost hear Pilate's relief as he gets to pass this annoyance, this pest, this irritation onto someone that he thinks very, very, very little of, namely Herod. Pilate's delighted when he hears that Jesus is a Galilean because it means that Jesus fits under Herod's jurisdiction rather than his own. So he flicks him over, this pest, this annoyance, anything, anything but a rival. He passes him on to a man who was regarded by the Romans as a kind of useful idiot. See, if Pilate was the high priest to the Son of God in Rome, the man who ensured that a steady stream of taxes and tributes kept flowing their way to the temple in Rome where the true Son of God dwells. Remember, that's how Augustus Caesar described himself, the Son of God. Well, if that's what Pilate is, what's Herod? Herod's a branch manager. This is what the Romans used to do. They would conquer lands, and yet they were filled with such disdain for the people that they conquered that they would usually keep someone who had a degree of local knowledge there on the ground. Their job was to collect the taxes, to handle local disputes, to deal with the natives, if you like, to more or less keep things relatively steady and easy. Herod used to be the big man, but then once Rome took over, Herod is a middle manager. And he's a man with limited power. He's a bit like a spoiled child. He's decadent. He's promiscuous, he's indulgent. He has a capacity for cruelty, but it's a particularly petty form of cruelty. 
I don't know if you recall, but at the beginning of Luke's gospel, John the Baptist falls foul of this Herod, Herod Antipas. John the Baptist was regarded as a much more serious threat to Herod than Jesus was because John the Baptist had denounced Herod's incestuous marriage to his sister-in-law. Herod, you'll recall, then had John beheaded. So he has a capacity for cruelty, but beneath it all, he's just kind of petty. He's narcissistic. The Romans can throw a few trinkets his way, and he'll be happy, so long as he gets to keep his palace, so long as he gets to keep his cushy lifestyle. He'll do whatever the Romans say. So how did Herod see Jesus? Well, much like Pilate, Herod certainly didn't see Jesus as a rival. Herod didn't even see Jesus as anywhere near as dangerous as he saw John the Baptist. He didn't see Jesus as a rival for his affections among the Jewish people. Herod, after all, was fabulously unpopular. You can imagine why. I mean, who among us, seriously, likes our middle managers? Who among us likes our local bosses? Herod was a guy who was elevated above his station, didn't deserve to be there. He was a turncoat. He was complicit. He was a traitor. He was tainted by the Roman stench. Nobody liked him, but Herod couldn't care less. If you'll permit me with a bit of extra Tolkien this morning, if you want to understand Herod, think more Grima Wormtongue than Saruman. Sniveling, groveling, decadent. Ridiculous. The chief priests and the leaders of the people, by the way, they were frightened of Jesus' popularity. They were frightened that so many had gone after them, gone after him. Herod, not so much. He had heard about Jesus, you see. Jesus had a bit of notoriety surrounding him. He was intrigued by Jesus' popularity, and so he was delighted to hear that Jesus was going to be brought before him. Let's see what all the fuss is about, he's saying. Entertain me. Show me something. What is it that the people find so attractive in you? So Herod pokes and prods. He tries to get a rise out of Jesus. He tries to provoke him. He wants Jesus to give him something, even if it's an outburst of anger like John the Baptist did. There's little difference, I think, believe it or not here, between Herod and Pilate. For both of them, Jesus isn't anywhere in their league. He's no threat to them. He's no rival. He poses no danger. For Pilate, it's indifference. Let me get rid of this guy so I can get back to bed. For Herod, It's prurient curiosity. He wants to see what all the fuss is about. And yet for both men, Jesus has no place in their world. He's more like a broken toy, a shattered bowl. He's like food that's past its expiry date. He's like a TV remote that no longer works. Jesus is a VHS tape in a world of super high-definition Blu-ray. And so Herod sends him back. But notice the most chilling line of all. That day, 
Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Because, you see, this is your hour and the power of darkness. There was simply no room in the darkness of Pilate's and Herod's world for Jesus. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Pilate and Herod, you see, were enemies, but now they became friends. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Those who do Satan's work will keep Satan's time. Darkness, you see, the darkness into which Jesus plunges. Darkness sounds, I think, a lot more interesting than it is. You notice there's something almost pathetic about the way that both Pilate and Herod are handling Jesus. Neither of them are overly malicious towards him. Neither are overly interested in him. Even when Pilate, in this remarkable moment, says, I have found this man has done nothing wrong. I will have him flogged and then released. Even that, there's no malice in it. It's just, I'll go through the motions. I'll offer a perfunctory punishment, and then he's free to go. There's no acquittal, just as there's no malice. Instead, it's disinterest. Can you feel, as we've been going through this, just how ridiculous, how passive, how uninterested Pilate and Herod have been? Jesus doesn't even rate for them. They simply have no room in their world for someone like that. He goes against the grain. There's no place, there's no point, there's no room. Luke, of all gospel writers, is amazed by this image of the leader of the Jews and the representative of Rome coming together to rage against this man. At the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke sees this through the lens of Psalm uh, 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah. Peter, who's delivering the sermon in Acts 4, expands it a bit further. It's easy for us, isn't it, to pick on Herod and Pilate. Neither of them seem very much like us, and so it's fine to throw stones at them. 
But listen to what St. Peter says in Acts 4, speaking to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In this city, both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. And so you see, the conspiracy just got bigger. It's not just two pathetic, ridiculous rulers scheming in back rooms. It's now them with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel. We all constitute this darkness, this collusion, this conspiracy, gathering together to snuff out the light. Again, it all sounds kind of interesting and secretive and conspiratorial, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul is a bit more modest about what's going on here. He says, we Christians who follow the path of this crucified Messiah, we Christians who follow the God whose wisdom looks an awful lot like foolishness and whose power looks an awful lot like weakness, we Christians who follow this God, Paul says, who has chosen the weak of the world to shame the strong, and the foolish of the world to shame the wise. We Christians, Paul says, speak wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before all ages for our glory. Listen to what he says. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Conspiracy sounds great, doesn't it? You know, we like the images. I mean, who among us doesn't like good conspiracy movies? People plotting, scheming, people in the know, people knowing how to pull the right threads, assassinate the right people. For the Apostle Paul, it's not really conspiracy, is it? It's stupidity. It's ignorance. The rulers of this world had the Lord of glory in front of them. And they couldn't see it. The rulers of this world had the creator of the universe in front of them. And they threw him out like garbage. Vengeance would be more interesting. Fury would be more interesting. Anger would be more interesting. This is just disinterest. It's boredom. It's ignorance. They had no idea what they were doing. They couldn't see it. Let me leave my beloved Tolkien to the side for a moment. It's rather a lot, isn't it, like what happens when the White Queen takes Aslan to the great stone table, humiliates him, executes him, not knowing that she's falling foul of deep magic that runs all the way down to the foundation of the world. Herod, Herod and Pilate are more guilty of ignorance and blindness than they are outright evil. But maybe that's precisely what evil is. One of the great poets of last century, W.H. Auden, when he first read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You see, I can never get too far away, you know. 
When he first read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, he said, there is one lesson that I've learned from these books. W.H. Auden said, evil has every advantage. It's superior in every way, except for one. It's inferior in imagination. You see, Sauron and his hosts could not imagine that people who had possession of the one ring wouldn't want to use that one ring in the interests of power. They could not imagine that they would use that ring to destroy it rather than for their own sake. And that is where we come in. Pilate throws Jesus to Herod. Herod throws Jesus back to Pilate. None of them acquit him. They're just not interested in him. And so they bring him before the people, the crowds of Gentiles and Jews that St. Peter describes in Acts 4. We have no charge against this man. He's not a threat to Rome. He's not trying to stage some uprising. He's not a rebel king. He represents no threat to Herod. He doesn't want to be the king of the Jews. We have no jurisdiction over this man. He, doesn't, he hasn't done anything that would concern us. Therefore, we'll throw him back to you. But the whole crowd shouted, we read, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. I don't know how you were taught when you were young. The image that was seared into my mind was Jesus meek and mild. And then Barabbas as a kind of first century Jack the Ripper. That it's almost as if the inhabitants of Israel were selecting a man almost to spite their own face. They were selecting a mass murderer, a a homicidal maniac to be re-released on the streets of Jerusalem. They were choosing him, this maniac, rather than meek and mild Jesus. What a perverse choice. What a perverse choice. Even if you didn't have any time for Jesus, who would want a mass murderer back on our streets? Well, the term that's used for Barabbas, I think, is a very important one. Barabbas is described as a rebel. A rebel, an insurrectionist, a revolutionary. Don't think Jack the Ripper, think Robin Hood. You see, when the people to whom Jesus is presented, when they are given the choice, what sort of person do you want? The same people that heralded Jesus, as we heard last Sunday, The same people who heralded Jesus as the military commander, the rebel leader, the insurrectionist that they were waiting for. The same people who heralded Jesus when they saw that Jesus had let them down, went for the next best option. Barabbas is our Messiah. Barabbas is the leader that we want. You see this entire group of people. Herod, Pilate, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, desperate to be out from under Roman rule. Nobody could see an alternative to power. 
There was no alternative to violence, to rivalry, to force. This was a people from top to bottom in the grip of ignorance, an ignorance that even shrouded the disciples themselves, Peter still nursing a sword laid into the night before. And crucifixion, you see, is the way of solving all of this. Crucifixion meant a great deal to the Jews. It meant something different to the Romans, but it meant a great deal to the Jews. You see, as Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. What crucifixion represented is someone who did pretend to speak for God is crucified and thereby shown for the world to see that God has forsaken this man. You cannot have a crucified Messiah or a crucified prophet any more than you can have a square circle or dark light. The two things don't go together. Crucifixion is proof positive that God himself has washed his hands of this man. Crucifixion for the people of Israel is for God to do to Jesus what Herod and Pilate have already done. This man is nothing. For Rome, crucifixion had an extra little punch to it. Crucifixion, as I've already said, was a punishment reserved for rivals, not for thieves. Whenever you see the term thief in your Gospels, disregard it. The word thief is the word rebel, insurrectionist, revolutionary. Who are the two people on either side of Jesus? Rebels. On whose cross does Jesus hang? The cross of a rebel. You see, for the Romans, crucifixion was the way of taking a rival and turning them into a slave. You notice what both have in common. Crucifixion is the act of judgment on a man who has no place in this world. Crucifixion is the judgment of the darkness. It's the way the darkness snuffs out the light. It's the way the darkness says to the light, God has forsaken you. It's the way that power says to the light, you are nothing. When the people of Israel chose Barabbas, they were choosing, they were choosing the Messiah that they wanted. They were choosing the sort of person they would want to lead them. Crucifixion is their no to everything that Jesus stood for. Just as crucifixion was Rome's no to any alternative that Jesus might represent. There's something kind of nice about crucifixion, isn't there? Just puts things back onto an even keel. Stitches up the edges, snips the loose threads. There's no alternative to power. There's no alternative to violent holiness. Crucifixion is the way of reasserting the status quo. Everything goes back to the way it ought to be. 
Israel goes back to fighting against their oppressors. Rome goes back to indiscriminately exercising power. What they have here snuffed out is anything that might look like an alternative. You see, this, this moment of crucifixion, this is your power. Sorry, this is your hour and the power of darkness. You can understand then that when some months after this crucifixion took place, some of Jesus' followers stood up. They didn't say a guy who died performed a wonderful magic trick and came back to life again. They didn't say someone who passed away performed the greatest stunt of all. What was their proclamation? This Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised. You can imagine why people went crazy over that. Because for one who was crucified to be raised means that everything that the world believed must be wrong. It matters how Jesus died, one rejected by everyone. It matters that Jesus died on a cross because at that moment, the powers of darkness did their worst in snuffing out anything that might seem like an alternative. It matters that Jesus died outside the city walls where rubbish and excrement and corpses were regularly dumped because he was dismissed as one who has no place in a world that runs on power and prestige and money and rivalry. It matters that the powers of darkness conspire together to snuff out this one light. It matters that Jesus died on a cross because at that moment, the world thought it had stitched things back up again. It had reasserted the status quo. This is the kind of world we have. We are duped, aren't we, into thinking we have no time for anything else, into thinking there are no other ways of living than with the grain of this world. The cross is the world's way of saying, we have no room for you. For this Jesus, then to be raised, means that everything that we believed about the world, everything we believed about power, everything we believed about God, must be wrong.